Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Torah section of Mishpatim, which means judgments, and covers Exodus chapter 21, goes through 24. The Haftarah, or parallel passage, is going to be over Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 22. And if you want to see the previous studies we've done on this particular passage, because we're likely not going to be able to get to every aspect of it, there's lots of details covered at halal.info slash p is in Peter 18. So halal.info slash p18. So when we look at this particular section, a number of particular overarching questions for this particular section is that this follows just after the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments that we see there in Exodus chapter 20. And so what we see here is a collection of instructions about a a world that's quite different from ours, a world that idolatry is extremely present and overt in your face and in God's face. And you also have slavery, cruelty, oppression, selfishness, and the things that are still around overtly today, like disrespect for authority. Yeah, like today, apathy, envy, etc. So, one of the things that we see here is that you could say, in one case, a um, number of people over time have seen that this is an expansion upon, or you could say application of, or as we'll get to in a moment, the Mishpatim related to the Ten Commandments. So that's one way you could take a look at it. But then you've got the question of, well, does the the Torah promote vigilantism? You know, if you see someone doing this, then you just go and take them out. That's kind of the caricature that you see that people have with the instructions and specifically the Torah, you know, the, the the common one that you saw floating around for decades was, well, if I see my neighbor out mowing his lawn on Shabbat, I would just go out and kill him, uh, which is, you know, a, a caricature. But one of the things that we get to is that this calls for wisdom, which is what we're going to be getting to a lot in this discussion here today. And another question, which comes up a lot in this particular section, is, well, is the, does the Torah promote slavery, or even really that you have the powerful is oppressing the less powerful or the powerless? Is that what is going on here with a lot of talk about slavery and selling your children and such like that? And, you know, just the general grab bag, well, are these judgments ignorant and obsolete by, uh, as some people caricaturize it, uh, sun-stroked goat herders or shepherds that just got out there and were suffering from some sort of heat heat stroke and um, had hallucinations. So, the key questions are, well, what did these things mean at the time that they were given to the people? And then the question also that comes from it is, well, what do they mean here today? So, 
what we'll see is that just what we looked at today is quite similar to what happens in courtrooms all over the world, in this country, in this state, in this county, all the time. Is you'll look at something that seems like it has no bearing whatsoever on your current situation and say, well, is there principles from it that can apply to what we're looking at here today? And that's where the wisdom comes in, you know. So, just a little bit about where the conversation goes in this particular section of Exodus 21 through 24, where it says, you know, these are the Mishpatim. And that phrase starts with, these are the books of the covenant. And this section, the books of the covenant, really runs from Exodus 21 through 23. So these directions are often referred to, as you'll see it here described in Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, as the mitzvotive, the mishpative, and the chukotive. So the key aspects of this, of the his commands, his statutes, and his ordinances, are described as his commands, his statutes, and his ordinances. It's one of the key things that you get with um, Hebrew in this case is that you've got the possessive that's tagged to every single aspect of this. So, just like we see in Leviticus uh, 23, where it talks about that these are the appointed times of the Lord, or these are His appointed times. So, likewise, we see that these are His commands, His statutes, His ordinances. And one of the things that we can see is that a good definition of mishpat, from when we get mishpatim for this particular section, is it can be understood as judgment or a decision or a case. In other words, case law. So, one of the interesting aspects that we can see as we move on, that you'll see a number of examples that we'll be getting to as we chug through the Torah here, is, you know, Moshe settled a mishpat, that we get to the end of Numbers, number chapter 27, with the daughters of Zelophehad, and making a decision that, well, is it only male heirs that get to inherit things? Well, what if you only have daughters? So, thus, you have a mishpat in this case. Another example comes from uh, Numbers 27 again, is where Yehoshua, Joshua, then takes over the mishpat before Eliezer the priests and the Urim from Moshe. So, you have this interesting aspect of a passing on of mishpat, the authority to make decisions. And you see that in this particular section, like especially Exodus 24, where it's like, okay, Moshe is going up on the mountain. Well, are then people totally out of luck for getting anything decided? No, there was a handoff to deputies to make then rulings and make decisions. And as you see, as the Torah rolls along, and you even see it when Yitro uh, comes up and talks to uh, Moshe, we saw it kind of a rewind a few chapters earlier, that one of the things that he suggested that Moshe do is delegate, basically pass on the rulings to make decisions to other people under you. And that's one of the the hardest things of management and leadership is to delegate. 
instead of just trying to do everything yourself or thinking that everybody else is totally incompetent to be able to deal with it. And, you know, I can say as as a uh, son of my parents that it was difficult to understand that there was delegation that was going on and that as I was going on in my teen years, that delegation of of my own making decisions about finances and this and that and the other, that that was happening. You know, you want it to happen now and not realizing that's the part of that handoff, like we've seen from one of these leaders to the next throughout the Torah, is important. We call it, in the big 50 cent word of the day, continuity. You have continuity from one to the next to make sure there is just not chaos in between when you have the handoff from one to the next. So thus, one of the the hardest things it is to learn is that when you're growing up that you are indeed getting handed off your responsibility for yourself. Now, one of the, the tragic things that's happened in the modern world is that this idea of the handoff the launching various other metaphors you can use for it the bible uses the thing of firing arrows from your quiver well some some parents just never hand it off it's kind of like they have a tether on the arrow as it's going out so they can just pull it back in any given time period well it's never let off to find the target or miss the target on its own and realize well should I have hit the target or should I miss the target? Was it bad to miss the target? Who cares if I ever aimed at the target? <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, a shoe on the arrow. <laughs> a shoe on the arrow, yes. <laughs> yeah, and some other examples there about uh, Shlomo was building basically a hall of justice, a courthouse, a place where you could have it now started to become, now that you actually have a physical place, you got the, the temple being built, then now you actually have a place where you are hearing cases. Now, one of the things that you see a lot of uh, symbols that go into, you look at the halls of justice we have around, where you are trying to convey, you look at the Supreme Court building of the United States or the Supreme Court building here in San Francisco for the California Supreme Court. You've got the imagery in there is to communicate what? Supposedly, fairness continuity that you are a part of a legacy that's going over a long period of time and wisdom so you got these things of continuity uh wisdom and also um impartiality is supposed to be another one of those <laughs> that factors into that so some of the other things we see where mishpat comes in is also as kind of a tag team word with Torah or instruction or law in in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 had 22 cases pairs mishpat together with Torah. So you get this idea that decisions decisions we make coming from instructions. You know, bad what happens if you try to make decisions without instructions? <laughs> it is called, uh, as Paul aptly termed it, grasping about in the dark. 
as he talks about with the pagan nations who don't know God and they'll get little pieces of truth here and there. Pamela, you have your hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, um, yes, go ahead. What is the oral flow? If, if everything was written, uh, as it says in Exodus 24, verse 4, uh, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Therefore, where does the oral Torah come from? Oh, the oral Torah. Well, that is a, a tradition that there was a whole set of uh, sayings and instructions that, that came in, were spoken at the particular time period, and then were, were passed down. So, one of the, the challenges that always comes in is, well, then how do you know what they are? One of the, the key things that came into play with why you ended up having in later rabbinic tradition from, you know, was it a couple centuries uh, BC through a few centuries AD, even long before that or long after that, where you had the codified of the Mishnah and the Talmud, where you had these things written down was for what purpose? So that people stop changing. You know, they don't just kind of float from one person to the next. Now, again, we, we emphasize this every time we go through the Torah. Um, ancient man was far better than modern man in uh, memory, <laughs> memory recall. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, if you have to use your memory a lot, you get better at it. You know, today, I mean, it's like we got all these devices and we can just look up anything at any given time. What? Who needs to memorize anything until it doesn't work and you can't access it? And then you're like, oh, crud. You realize you really don't know much of anything <laughs> because you never took the time to memorize any any of it. Yes. In, in the, as I mentioned before, we've talked about this periodically over the years, that in the written component, it, it is... Unlike the Gentile tradition, Jewish tradition, when it comes to written writing stuff down, it regards the Torah or the Tanakh in general, all, all the writings, they're very, very diligent, not making variations when it comes written down. So the, the, the tradition of writing it down was very, very thorough. Hence, why the the Qumran, you know, caves have for almost verbatim exact with some spelling variations of yes. some words. It's virtually verbatim what it is today, even though. Uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years passed between when they were written versus the, co- the, the other old copies. Um, but it, we, I was reading about um, uh, this prior to the Talmud being written down, uh, the, 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 the two varieties, right? The, the, the most common ones, which is the Babylonian and, and the Jewish Talmuds, right? They have the same laws being talked about, but different rulings on them, different variations. Well, in this right. case, this one ruled it that way. In that case, the rabbi ruled it this other way. And they all claimed there was oral Torah. Well, the whole point of oral Torah was that that's why the Messiah's disciples asked him, for example, how do you pray? How do you do this? How do you do that? Because each rabbi had their own way of Correct. doing something. Yes. And, and, and so the whole idea of the oral Torah was that every rabbi had his own way. He had his own disciples. He, well, we do it this way. You do it that way. And each claimed, well, it's from Moses. Well, yeah, whatever. But the whole point which Akiva wanted to do and others were helping him was, okay, let's write everything down. I mentioned this earlier, actually, earlier as we were setting up earlier. There's some garbage in there. <laughs> like, somebody was just high on something or what? I don't right. know. Or, and there's some really powerful, fundamental, foundational things written into it. 
And you had rabbis teach you lots of different stuff, all of them claiming some ancient tradition of whatever. But uh, oral Torah has its function, but you always, like everything else, every other law, there is no earth. You filter it with the written Torah. If it contradicts written Torah, okay, that part's useless. And well, oh, this part's useful, that kind of thing. It, it's, it's no different than you do it any other law or any other scenario in your own personal life. Does it, does it Torah, Torah filter it out or does it support it? And if it doesn't support it, you can set it aside. You may explore it later for your own academic reasons, but that's so the Torah has its usefulness. But like from in my world, I filter with, Torah, with the written Torah first, so that one's fixed, hasn't changed for at least at least almost three thousand years. I know that much, or <laughs> close to it. Um, and that's that's there's a consistent, valuable thing, um, and I can always filter things out that way. But the Oral Torah has really profound in some areas profound arguments and discussions about certain things. It also has some weird, you know, odd oddities, but everything does. Everything has oddities. Yeah, and where you end up seeing is a discussion among various people. So with what is sometimes frustrating for people first coming to the Mishnah or the Talmud is that you don't see the conclusion in there. This is, this is not like seeing you know a Supreme Court ruling where you're going through and you'll see that the justices are talking about the various cases that relate to it. Then they have their conclusion and their ruling. The, the Talmud does not do that. So you'll see all kinds of stuff in there. And the better part of wisdom then is to say well does this make the Torah stand up or does it make the Torah fall down which is what the um, rabbinical way of describing it goes so that requires wisdom and just as you'll see today where you'll see in constitutional law will there be a ruling from a court and did that support the constitution or did it make the constitution fall down and become less significant um less uh you could say less protective you might say so just like it is today as it was then things require wisdom in how you put them into practice so thus we could see and the lesson is that that the mishpatim are what you would say situational but they are have principles that go underneath them so we must be careful in how we take a look at the Mishpatim. And just like today, you might hear people say, well, this is a narrow ruling, or this is a broad precedent-setting ruling. A narrow ruling is, it is only to this particular situation. Sometimes you'll even see that they'll say, this ruling is not precedent, meaning that it was only for this case and you can't apply it and you should not apply it to anything else. Well then, if that's the way it was then, it's the way that things have happened in the past, this could be a situational thing for a particular thing. A particular situation, which is also what comes into play with some of Paul's letters. Is Paul writing for everybody for all time, or is he writing for a specific situation in a particular congregation, in a particular part of the Roman Empire, in a particular point in its history? So that then takes wisdom to see, well, or as you could say, discernment to figure out which is which on this. Now, 
interestingly, is a warning that the Apostle Paul brings up and as he offers to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So, that's one of the warnings that the Apostle Paul brings out, and it should be a warning to those who um, read the Apostle Paul, is that when he's talking about the application of the law and reading the law, you have to be careful that you are not making it say what it doesn't say, and then also not applying what it says you should apply. (laughs) So it goes in both directions on that. Now, which brings up a very interesting conversation in modern times, is that with our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah, there are those that just say, well, all all of that stuff in the Old Testament nailed to the cross, we never have to think about it again. But then there's also a whole lot of others that will say, hey, you know, and they are starting to rediscover the things in the Torah a lot and say, hey, we've missed a lot of this stuff over time. And taking a look under the hood of the Gospels and go, wow, um, we seem to have really misunderstood these things. Maybe we should take a look at them. And this is just one example from a, um, a book that came out this particular year. And it's encouraging Christians to basically, uh, if you don't stand up for the things that you learn in church and you read in the Bible, you may not be able to have these rights, laws, even your own family life, your own family culture, much longer. So, the book called uh, Do What You Believe or You Won't Be Free to Believe It Much Longer by an author named Steve Dace. And he says, A culture is always better served by following God's examples of restitution, accountability, and restoration as a means of keeping the peace, as opposed to subjecting itself to vengeance, relativism, and leniency. The rights of victims come first, and they must be made whole and restored before restoration is granted to the perpetrator. And some crimes can be so heinous that restoration in this life just isn't possible. So, I think that could be the, just a summary of Mishpatim here today, because even though this particular author is not a big fan of saying, hey, you know, the, the Torah is just as important today as it was then for the, the people of God and believers in, in Yeshua, What you see right here is really a fundamental principle of what the Torah is really all about and what Paul was getting at with the law is lawful if you use it lawfully. Particularly thorny issue, might as well get it out of the way and take a look at Exodus chapter 21, which starts us off right away with some really um, light light topics like laws on slaves and we have about the hebrew slave there in exodus 21 and about the female slave the hebrew slave and then you get the question that comes up about the the female slave well is this talking about polygamy is this the bible actually teaching about polygamy more than one wife then you have the laws on violence and thus you might ask a question well does this exodus 21 20 through 21 
uh, supports the beatings by the American slaveholders you know, leading up to the Civil War. You know, is that what that's all about? So that's one of the, the things that we really have to look at. And one of the interesting things that we've just looked at one way of taking a look at this particular um, way of looking at Mishpatim is that it is a, a recapitulation or a retelling, a explanation, um, making it clearer what the Ten Commandments are all about. And then you see, as we get into Deuteronomy, you will see that uh, this is the Ten Commandments seems to be played out and explained in great detail, every single one of them. So one of the things that um, I take a look at here is the law of the Jewish slave. And we see it when we get into Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. So this, we might say, is a little bit of a cliff note of the situation. But what we see also is that when you start, we see hints of it here with the seventh year and go free in the seventh year. But you see hints of it saying, okay, slaveholder, you are not the real owner here. You are not the owner. And when we talk about the Shemitah or the sabbatical year, when we talk about the Yobel, and then also when we talk about Shabbat. So you can see a kind of an accordion from the fourth commandment, the one on the Sabbath, an accordion lesson there every seventh day, every seventh year, and then seven sevens of years plus one, the Yobel or the Jubilee year, then you have the freeing of slaves. Oh, yes, uh, Daniel has a comment or a question. You mentioned that point earlier uh, regarding, you know, obsolete or, or old things we don't do anymore. Slavery is gone. Yeah, slavery is only gone in the United States and, well, for the most part, part, part of the United States and, and, and Europe. It's still alive and well in many countries today, including in particular the most dominant one, which is the most well-publicized one, is in China, which slavery is alive and well. They've got fields of cotton, they've got men with whips, and they've beaten and harassed and, 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 and butcher people, whatever they see fit. Slaves whole, in internment camps. Yeah, exactly. Wow, it seems, exactly. seems like a modern nation. <laughs> so the, the, the laws, you can say, well, they're applied well, to one particular place or nation but reality is slavery never went away no it's still going on has going on and of course today now we use in our country as sex slaves the dominant use but still the slaves are still still heavily used all over the world and there are millions of people in slavery as we speak and that hasn't changed i mean how do you think we get our clothes so cheap <laughs> it isn't because uh, they just miraculously grew cheaper stuff it's it's because they're still using slaves so the principle that obsolete laws are obsolete, sort of, sort when, of. When, when they don't apply to you in particular. Yes. I, mean, I can obsolete give a law if it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me. I don't do that or I don't have that application. I'm not a priest, for example. So I don't, the, the laws of police don't apply to me because I'm not a priest. So it's, quote, obsolete and a quote to me. But it isn't this somebody else? So it's funny that we look at laws. Well, these are old laws. We don't do this anymore. Even polygamy. It's old stuff. No, that's still alive and well today. Yes, <laughs> that it, hasn't yes, it changed. Is. It's just our own personal nation. It's not promoted. But it doesn't mean it's not alive. It doesn't mean you may not. And tomorrow you may live in a country where it is applying. 
where these things are alive and around. You could be kicked out of the station, or well, who knows? Life happens. You may end up in a country. Oh well, my neighbor is a slave or a slave whole, a slave owner. Oh, I didn't know that. Or my other neighbor, he's he's a polygamist. He's got you know five wives. Oh, okay, I teach my own kids. Hey, this is how life works here in this new country. This is what is and is not applicable. This is how life, how you function. They are still existent. Yeah. Nothing's really changed. And you you bring up a very interesting point. Is that um, one of the the key aspects that we take a look at is that these this was given to a culture that had slavery, and that culture of slavery even exists to today. But one of the things that you see in here is, you might say, the poison pill for slavery. And a key one of those is the Shemitah and the Yobel. And we've talked about this when we get through it further on into the Torah as to why these are a poison pill. And actually, that's a part of what we're going to be looking at in our Haftarah reading here today, is the poison pill that comes in. The poison pill is basically... um, that this is presented as an if-then. You know, if you do this, if you have a Hebrew slave, if you have a Hebrew female slave, well, then do this. But you get the principle that comes out of it very similar to when we go over and we talk about vows and oaths in the Torah, is that you see the instruction that Yeshua comes out, and he says, well, it's best not to make a vow at all, to make an oath at all. But the Torah says that there's a provision for it. But Yeshua's point is, you have to know what you're getting into. You don't just make these things to maybe you think that it's nice or whatever. It is a huge commitment that you are making when you take a vow, when you take an oath. So, it's best not to even go into them whatsoever. Because if, as it says many times with the word, is that you will surely pay your vows. That they are a big deal. They're not just a passing sort of thing where, you know, someone passes around an interest card. Hey, do you want to make a donation? And you just check the box and put it in a plate somewhere and say, well, maybe I'll pay it, maybe I won't. Well, no, that's... We've talked about this in the context that a vow, an oath is a promise. And a vow and an oath to the things of God is a promise to God. Now, why is that important? Is because of the reciprocal principle. Because heaven has made vows and promises to us. Vows and promises that span huge lengths of time. So... Just like we don't want heaven to treat its vows and oaths to us lightly and to just, you know, all, you know, there are some people who do think that that is the case. And you can just carve huge sections of the prophets and just throw them away because those were oaths, vows, promises that heaven made that in the latter days, da 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 da. -da, And, you know, I will gather you back in. Well, if heavens treats its vows and promises lightly, where these are alternate reality, then why should we treat vows and oaths with any sort of seriousness? So because heaven treats them seriously, we treat them seriously as it goes around again. So 
one of the key things that we will see as we get on further into this discussion, as we get into our Haftarah reading for today, is that the poison pill that comes in is what is the situation where someone is coming into your house as a servant, as a female servant or as a male servant? We talked a lot about in the times past about indentured servitude. One of the things about indentured servitude is is that the financial system of ancient times and even up into somewhat modern times is not the same as it is today. You don't just whip out your credit card and swipe away. That credit was you. And sadly, even your children, too. And especially if you got yourself into a lot of trouble, then if you got yourself into a lot of trouble, then you would, would uh, end up selling your debts meaning yourself, to someone else who would hold that. And that, what you sold it for, would then go to pay your debts. You know, remember that whole thing in the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Yeshua taught about just as you forgive debts, so the Lord will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your debts, then the Lord will not forgive you. That being a huge principle involved here. So thus, the lesson being with these servants in your household, they are coming to you in a less powerful position or even a powerless position. They are hat in hand situation. Some have even posited that what you see with the female slaves is a basically a way for a very poor family to give their daughters a future where you basically are um, having a way for the daughter to then marry into a wealthy family. So thus, when you get that picture of, well, if you treat her harshly, various ways that that's translated, if you basically do her violence and that um, that word that's used there, the last way that that is also used was back in the time of Yaakov worrying about Yosef and that Yosef was um, basically cast off aside. So you have that picture there of this daughter of a poor father wants to give the daughter a better way, maybe has to pay off debts, but cannot support the family, gets into problems himself. The daughter goes into a family that that's really going to be her being adopted in to be married into the family. But if they don't treat her as if she's an equal, and then you see the stipulation in there that if the daughter is married to the son of the, um, you could say the lean older, the slave owner, the servant owner, then you have to allow the father of the girl to redeem her. And, and the picture there is at a, at a prorated rate. So it's not like he has to pay the whole thing back, but he can actually redeem her at uh, far less than what was um, that 
he had uh, received in the process. So, again, one of the things that happens in here is what is happening on the inside of the person? What is happening on the inside of the father who is selling his daughter off to a new family? Is he doing it for cash? Is he doing it because I'm just sick of her, get her out? Or is he looking for a better life? And then on the receiving end, that one who is buying, bringing the pain, the dowry, so to speak, of the daughter coming in, is he doing it to use her? Or is he doing it like, oh, okay, well, this is now a part of my family. And then you see the instructions for, you know, if the son then wants to uh, add on other wives, she cannot just be treated as chattel. She has to be treated exactly the same as any other wife that comes in. So, thus, discouraging just, you know, the cast-off wives. Yes. In, in the, uh, the alternative option they have, of course, is harlotry. Yes, and, and the point is trying to find solutions that do not result in harlotry. Yes, exactly. The options which you can you can choose um, in in modern day, it's harlotry is more commonly done because that's how the slave, sex slave industry works. But uh, and, that, and that's the process where you use her for a certain fee, and then she's done being used. But next to a certain fee, done being used, that kind of thing. Um, but in in in, in the and that and that sadly, you know, when you when you hear a lot of these. Um, these nonprofits that work really hard against sex slavery, that is one of the things they are fighting, is yeah. families selling their right. daughters into this. Because as far as they're concerned, hey, it's a, it's a way of making cash. Yes. I don't need this one anymore. It's, I don't have to pay the food bill anymore. All kind of whatever the, the reasons are. Or I don't like her for whatever reason. It doesn't make a difference. Or, or a stepfather comes in. Oh, well, we don't need this kid. Get rid of him. Um, those, it's, a, it's, it's a scenario in which the Bible recognizes Poverty. Yes. And recognize, okay, there are, there are people who will do, to be desperate to get out of poverty. Well, let's avoid the harlotry route, which would get you out of poverty as well, but not uh, not in a positive life. That life would be probably short-lived, most likely, because most harlots didn't live long, um, and you wouldn't, you'd, you'd suffer. And there's a way of getting out of that without but recognizing that you are impoverished, and you got to do something. And so here's a solution. Here's a way which you can avoid the harlot route of poverty. Yeah, which brings us now, when we talk about the heart situation, what is actually happening inside of a person and why you could see that the heaven is really working to put a poison pill into this particular type of mistreatment of people. Uh, We move over to the Haftarah reading, the parallel portion that we're taking a look at is in the book of Jeremiah. So, going fast-forwarding through long stretch of the history of Israel, basically, from as it's just forming into a nation to where it's uh, coming off the rails. So, stretching down way long into Israel's history. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 
uh, 22. And this parallels, in a historical context, what you see in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah's uh, chapters 39 and 52 talk about very similar thing. So as we get started here, blessing over the Haftarah reading. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who chose good prophets and was pleased with their words, which they spoke in truth. Blessed are you, Lord, who chose the Torah, Moshe his servant, Israel his people, and the prophets and apostles of truth and righteousness. Amen. So, Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 22. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them, that each man should set free his, female, his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed and had entered into the covenant uh, that each man should set his free his male servant and each man his female servant so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and they set them free. But afterward they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Mizraim from the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you for six years, and you shall send him out free from you. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. And although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and then you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name, Yet you turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant, and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and your female servants. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you a terror in all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Yehudah and the officials of Yerushalayim, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the land of their, the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Zedekiah, king of Yehuda, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has gone away from you. Behold, 
I'm going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to the city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Yehuda a desolation without inhabitants. Yeah. Wow, I was right. Yeah, Larry. When you say poison pill, do you mean that they, he's making restrictions on it that's going to make it like really not tenable or, and not profitable to do so that it'll die out? Basically, he sets up the situation we just read about, where the hearts of the people had become corrupt, and instead of being a hand up, they became a fist down to beat down the people that needed the help the most. So why then do you see all the prophets, you know, Yeshiyahu, Yemeriyahu, all the other ones will talk about oppressing the widow, the orphan, these people who needed the help were being subjugated. The structures that were put in place to be a help were ended up being oppression in the process. So one of the, the key lessons here is, is that, well, you know, you were taken, like it says there in verse 13, uh, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim from the house of bondage. So, your forefathers came out of the house of bondage. And what have you done? You've now put people into bondage. This was supposed to be helping people. You are now hurting people. You are subjecting people in the process to the point where this poison pill of the Shemitah and the Yobel was to say, hey, don't grab onto these people like they're yours, like they're just, you know, they're nothing. They are people so if you don't treat them like that treat them that they're not yours well it just won't be uh, as it as it talks there it's a very interesting way that this is um in verse 17 of this chapter 34 therefore thus says the lord god you have not obeyed me in proclaiming a release to each man so because you have not proclaimed the Shemitah, you have not proclaimed the Yobel to release people. Well, now I'm going to release you to what? To the sword. So, you know, you have been beating down and oppressing people, uh, not listening to the aspects of that you are supposed to release people to compensate people, etc. Now you are going to be released from basically life and freedom and etc. You are now going to be subjugated by a foreign empire. Yes, Larry. That was, wasn't that Abraham's covenant when he had to walk between the... Very the, interesting. So this means when you do that, if, if I don't do what, what I said, may I be like these pieces of meat? Yes. So you, you thus have uh, multiple touch points. We've, we've seen one in the particular Mishpatim passage we just read there where they went through the section of laws. And again, just like we saw in chapter 20 of Exodus, where it's like, these things we will do. We will do these things. You know, making a promise, making an oath, but not actually doing these things. The people that were slaves apparently didn't know that they had the right to get out in seven years. Well, there's, there's all, and when we talked about another poison pill, which we'll get to, is when they talk about kidnapping. You know, kidnapping, that is like for slavery. And then also, if your slave runs away, not like in the South, not like in American history, you don't go run up and get them and drag them back, they are gone. 
you know, if they run away from you, that's it. So thus, your lesson is to what we 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 call that today uh, employee retention. So, you know, if you want to still have a company, you don't drive away all your employees, make them all want to quit. Well, if you want to have people working with you, you have paid their debts off. So they are working off their debts for you. Well, they're just going to split. And the Lord says, okay, when they split, they're gone. But what were these people doing? No, they were holding them in chains. You know, maybe not literal chains, but the chains of you cannot go if you just don't like it here anymore. You are, you know, you're stuck. And then to let them free and then drag them back again to basically set them free. Now you saw in the, that's what I was saying, the historical context of Second uh, Kings 25 and such with the Babylon leaving and then being brought back here. What was the leaving part about was the basically, okay, uh, the repentance is shown here to a certain degree. So thus the threat, direct threat of the opposing force coming in was taken off slightly. But then they repented from their repenting. (laughs) They turned around yet again and went headed right back into evil again. So thus the Lord is saying, okay, well. Uh, if you didn't think freedom for them was good, well, freedom for you is not going to be good and it's going to be gone. One of the, the key lessons that we have from this particular Haftar reading is that to have as much mercy on those who really need mercy as God has had on Israel by taking Israel out of the house of bondage, out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt. And the... Remember what we read, the beginning part of Shemot, or Exodus, that the people cried out, and the Lord heard them. Well, what do you see right here in this passage? The people are crying out, and the Lord heard them. (laughs) And that, uh, or being being reminded that uh, the freedom that they have is provisional, that the God has really carved out in this land amongst all the nations a place for the people of God. So, a very interesting also Haftarah lesson is the little tiny book letter of Philemon. Every time I see that, I just think Philemon Yon. Hmm. So, you might say kind of a prime cut of uh, Torah wisdom on master-servant relations, served up in a very small bite. So, if you're looking for it there, it's can be very hard to find since it's like one chapter yes uh, alex i see your hand up uh, yeah the back to the slavery thing yes um, it's just interesting that again with the american south and i i'd mentioned earlier uh, i don't think you heard me but i'm reading a book on a slave's account it was all up to the owner he owned them and you know it's like yeah maybe i'll give you your freedom or maybe i'll let you work another five years and we'll talk about it or maybe never and purely up to the owner it wasn't like a law uh, from yahweh it, it, it's it's a really a very big difference there. it's yeah very uh, subjective and there are not that many just slave owners yeah 
and that's and that's one of those things where you where you see the the history of it in the United States and really throughout the British Empire as well. That progression from indentured servitude to <laughs> to you could call it chattel slavery, where you have become less than a person, a dehumanized, and turned into something you you are just traded for. Now, in particular, what we see is what the kind of heart change that should be happening with the master-servant relationship is what we see in this tiny little book here of uh, Philemon. So, just take a look at this. Uh, It's just one chapter long. Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our brother, Beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the assembly in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which what you have toward the Lord Yeshua and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Messiah's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Messiah to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be, in effect, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way and owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, and I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Messiah. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do more, even more, than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I would be given to you. Epaphras, our fellow prisoner in Messiah Yeshua, greets you, as do Marcus, Marcus. Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit. Amen. So, one of the interesting things about this tiny little letter here is that uh, Anisimus 
His name means useful, as the Thayer's lexicon puts it, or as handy as the Jewish annotated New Testament puts it. So you might say his name means sort of like handyman. And it's noted that it's a common name for slaves at the time, and the thinking is perhaps because that means handy or useful, that that is what they were called. Anisimus is a common name you see in historical records. Now, one of the interesting things that um, the Expositor's Bible Commentary notes on verse 11 is a Greek pun. I always love puns, but this in particular is that useless is akrestos, and useful is eukrestos, and translated as useless and useful. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, translates as Christos as Tov. So you might think Tov, good, uh, useful, um, wonderful. And linguists there see that this pun is with the identically spelled, so Christos and Christos. So Christos, Christos. You know, so Christos being what we say is Messiah, uh, Christ, Mashiach, anointed very similar. So you might in a sense be saying here that the Mashiach turns one from being useless to heaven into being useful. So you get this kind of play on words with what Paul is writing here. And Another thing to note is that with the master-servant relationship is something that the Messiah said and recorded in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, that he did not come to be served, but to serve. So in this particular account, it goes on and says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Yeshua with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Yeshua answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Yeshua called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the nations, the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So thus you see, when you're talking about the heart of the Torah and what was involved in here, in the relationship of the slaves, you have Avraham, who, you know, as we go through the book of Bereshit, book of Genesis, we see Avraham, the great uh, chieftain of the time, coming basically bailing out uh, local uh, city-state chiefs at the time. He was an impressive force, an impressive one to be dealt with. That master then became servants in bondage down in Israel. And as we saw there, um, referenced by the prophet Yermariahu, is that this thing, this vision that was given to Avraham, that 
that he would then be, Israel would be divided, but then would be brought back up again, out of slavery. So the master becomes the servant, goes back into the land, and the land is occupied again. It's got, you know, a whole bunch of other nations that are in there at the time. But those that are there would then become servants. The masters of the land of Canaan would then become the servants to Israel who are coming out from being servants to become masters of the land again. But as we just read uh, in the Torah portion and also in the Haftarah portion, that your status of masters of the land is not because you are so fantastic, because the Lord had mercy on you. And if you then try to lord it over and oppress those who need help, well, your mastership will become slavery. You will move from master to servant. Because the attitude of the the servant of God, the servant of the Lord, was that even though he was master, he then would become servant. And in the way of becoming a servant to all, he would then become master of all. So that is the heart of what the Torah is getting at here. And what is meant in the instructions underlying the surface. So thus we can see the principles that are encapsulated in the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Ten Statements, the Testimony of the Lord, and are to be expounded in where we look at here in Exodus and as we move on into the other books of the Torah. We see here that these are the principles that are laid out. So then that we can take these principles and then move them into our life. But the applications that we put into everyday life have to make those principles stand up, not fall down, not to make them obsolete or um, of no use. Any last thoughts before we uh, close out this particular... Uh, yes, Anne, we have a comment or a question over there. In the letter to Philemon on... Uh Verse 19, I think, um, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yeah. Which, which sounds like Paul was saved by uh, Philemon himself at some point, and, or Philemon was saved in some way yes. through Paul. By, and, by uh, Paul, yeah. So. And, uh, and so... Um, you know, he's reminding him about something that he did for him and um, hoping hoping that uh, we don't know the whole story. I mean, do, do we have any follow-up at all? Uh, there's, there's various legends that are in this particular encounter, but we don't know anything for absolute certain about this. Onesimus has mentioned one of the other letters just in passing. That's about it. So what we what we know is just what's mentioned here, but... The point being is that the saying that, okay, you were master for Onesimus. So Onesimus has now left 
But a very interesting thing that you see in this particular thing that Paul mentions is that, well, maybe his leaving was something that would be good to kind of generate the situation because one of the things that happened with Anismus leaving is that he, as he mentions up earlier, um, verse 10, uh, Anismus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment so that he has basically brought him through to the new, the new birth to a new person his new creation in the body of messiah through his running away from his master now the interesting thing that's happened is that we see Philemon is a new man Anesimus is a new man and it's like okay you are now in the same body of Messiah. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you still going to, you know, treat each other the same way? Now, he's saying that Anusmus is being sent back to Philemon. Now, this situation then is now left to Philemon. Now, what are you going to do about it of your own free will? No longer, not only how are you going to treat him, but what are you going to do about this particular situation of him you know, coming back to you? Um, Daniel and, and then uh, Larry. Regarding that particular topic, because when a, slave, <clears throat> when a slave runs away from his master, the master can't go pursue him. Right? That, 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 that's it. He runs away, he's, he's set free. The fact that Paul's sending him back, and he's on his own accord. When he sees his, obviously could say, yeah, Paul, I'll go back, walk 10 steps and run the other way. But he doesn't. I mean, it's supposedly he's going all the way back. That's clearly the letter gets to him. Um, so it clearly ha- has to have succeeded. So the slave is is being instructed, go back to your master. That's a that's a difficult thing to do. And because you ran away for a particular reason, whatever the reason was, he ran away, thought it was a justified reason to run away. So the, 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 this whole scenario that he wouldn't know, know the Torah, the slave has no reason to come back to it. There's no justification, no ownership applied, nothing at all. Once he ran away, he's free. He's a free man. The fact he's being sent to come back says, okay, there's a, a tremendous heart and mind change in this slave of mine who ran away and does not need to come back for any reason, is choosing to come back. And I have the opportunity to make him pay whatever he owes, whatever I paid when I bought it to begin with. And that, that's a big deal, which is not yes. normally done in the Torah. That's, a, that's totally outside the realm of what the Torah would normally require of him. It's within the power of men to do, mm-hmm. to be justified that way. But the fact that he's doing it to begin with is, is profound. And uh, Philemon's decision, obviously, Paul's, it's still your choice. You can choose what you want to do, because Paul knows the Torah is within your hands. You know what the law says. Yeah. You know what you can require of him. And it gives him the nice little nudge, say, hey, I bailed you I out. Bailed you, you bailed you out. Now, we don't know what yes. capacity it was. Who, who right. knows? But, but the point is, it's, it's, it's giving these men the opportunity to demonstrate what their character is. And what are tr- you made of? And true reconciliation. Right. You know, right. just as heaven has reconcil- reconciled us, so you two need to reconcile each other. In a sense, you could say this is like Matthew 18 kind of played out because uh, both of them... Both Anisimus and Philemon are really being shown, okay, where their situation may need to uh, change in this regard. But you see that this reconciliation being put forward. Now, one of the things I've wondered is that this is a bit of a nudge because if you look and remember the Master's words in Matthew 18, 
is that if Philemon does not reconcile, basically turn around from the situation that caused Anismus to run away or whatever, then what is the Messiah's instruction for the assembly? Philemon, you need to go away for a while. Yes, Larry. It sounds like to me like another one of Paul's understatements. <laughs> yes. He's got Philemon's <laughs> arm behind his back yes. because apparently he introduced him to Messiah, which is his whole life, his eternal life. And he's saying, if you want, I'll pay for, I'll pay whatever he, you think he owes you. But right. remember what I did. So yes. I don't, Philemon's not going to say, <laughs> okay, I'll write you a bill. Yes. No, oh, never mind. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll take care. Don't worry about it. Yes, exactly. Yes, Anne. I think the follow-up was the best part at, was at the end there where he's asking Philemon to remember him and also prepare a guest room for me. Yep. Trust through your prayers he shall be granted to be able to go there again. So that would be a real reward for him if he did if he did this very thing that Paul mentions to him and, and prepares a room for this friend of his that brought him to the Lord too. So, I mean, you know, the two, three of them get together like Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's... Yeah, it may, may not have, you know, it's, there, there are the various uh, chronologies of where this letter fits in, and this is pretty kind of late in, you know, as, as he mentions, the hinting at being imprisoned there. So this is kind of, um, could be later on toward the very end, so... Yeah, but the but the point being is that what has uh, the apostle left in his wake? Even though he the apostle is in chains, he has freed someone who was in chains and freed the one who put someone in chains, so to speak. Freed both Anismus and Philemon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, make, yeah. Make make sure that he uh, follows up with this. All right. Any uh, last thoughts as we kind of close? Oh, Tammy, have a comment over here. Although, in, like we're talking about, how the Torah says that oh, if a slave runs away, you can't chase him down. That's the end of it. Roman law was not that no, way. No, not not that way whatsoever. In Roman law, Onesius was facing a death penalty. Yep. Because Philemon, if he had been unrepentant or hardened of heart, could have just killed him. Yeah. The spot and the Roman nobody would have said anything about it. That would have been the end of it. It's very, so, very interesting because you, you, you see the see the contrast of um, the ethics of the so-called sunstroke goat herders being far better than the ethics of the great um, enlightened Roman Empire with their Roman law and marble and grandeur and i did look up um something on onesius um yes i guess church tradition does right. say that he was freed and he actually mm -hmm. eventually became bishop of um he actually became bishop of ephesus mm. wow um he inherited the bishopric of ephesus from ignatius who had been a, a, a apostle of the apostle john ah so mm -hmm. he ended up in, in that wow. uh, line so um, it's an uh, interesting end to that story. Um, there's different versions of when he died. Mm -hmm. He either died right. around the same time Paul did, actually, around 68 AD, oh. um, in one persecution, or maybe later on, um, around 81 or so, mm -hmm. in a different persecution. But 
Um, either way, it, tradition says he died as a martyr. So, mm. well, well, praise God. Definitely, uh, the captive set free in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hallelujah. So, I guess one of the th- things we can get out of all these lessons that we've looked at here today is that we should be looking at the principles. We can take a look at these instructions and go, oh, well, this is just our really archaic things. But what is the situation of the people at hand? And what is the principle that's being put into place? And that principle that's being put into place may have a far more strategic look. You know, we always talk about that the Lord sees Le'olam or beyond where we can see over the horizon. So in a similar way, we could be seeing instructions here that are looking to uh, solve the situation way off into the future and also in the present particular time period. So I'll close out uh, our kind of double-header Haftar readings here with the blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, rock of all the worlds, righteous in all the generations, the Almighty, the faithful one, who says and does, who speaks and fulfills, for all his words are true and right. Dependable are you, Lord our God, and dependable are your words, and not one of your words is ever retracted unfulfilled. For you are the Almighty, the King, who is dependable and merciful. Blessed are you, Lord, the Almighty, who is dependable in all his words. Have compassion on Sion, for it is the home of our life, and the one whose soul is humiliated delivers speedily in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes Sion to rejoice with her children. Cause us to rejoice, Adonai, our God, with Eliyahu the prophet, your servant, and with the kingdom of the house of David, your anointed. Speedily may he come and cause our heart to exult. Upon his throne no stranger will sit, and others will no longer inherit his honor. For by your holy name you swore to him that his light will never be extinguished. Blessed are you, Lord, shield of David, for the Torah, for the divine service, for the prophets and apostles, and for this Sabbath day, which you gave which you gave us, Lord our God, for holiness and for rest, for honor and for glory. For all this, Lord our God, we thank you and bless you. Blessed be your name by the mouth of all the living continually forever. Blessed are you, Lord, sanctifier of the Sabbath. Amen. Amen. So that's where we're ending things today. Next Shabbat is the Torah reading Teramah, which covers uh, Exodus 25 and chugs through about half of chapter 27. Father God, we thank you for all the, the things that you've taught us from all your servants. And Father, we just ask that you help us to take these lessons into the world around us. We thank you for all these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.